Hello, dreamers, and welcome to today's episode. Before we get started, I wanted to thank you all for being so cool and understanding about the erratic release schedule of these allegedly weekly episodes. I did finish a major part of the project that I'm working on for the My Dark Path podcast, so I've set aside some time this week to throw together this story for you. And this week we are celebrating in the United States a Thanksgiving holiday, but I'm not going to see my family this time. I'll be here working on being thankful for everything in my own way, I guess. I'll be visiting my family in December, so I have that to look forward to. I've been kind of going through some ups and downs lately here in Nevada, and it's sort of been feeling like more downs than usual. So I've decided to kind of sit this holiday out and basically take the next two weeks to focus on me and the things that I've been neglecting or procrastinating on around the house, the dogs, myself, as well as trying to catch up on some reading and research for this show, My Dark Path, and for Patreon. I'm sort of in the state of everything being half finished, and this episode has been a part of that, so I really wanted to try to get this done before Thursday. So I kind of wanted to tell you listening that in all this spare time that I really shouldn't be having, I've been binge watching some full-length interrogation videos. I've tried to pick ones that involve suspects who sound familiar to me just by their name. Like, I may have heard their case before or heard it on a podcast. And seriously, of the handful that I have picked thus far, every single one of them has been from Florida. Which, I guess, kind of makes sense, you know, because Florida. So the last one I watched, I knew I heard before in a podcast, the guy's name was Grant Amato. He's a 30-something-year-old in Seminole County, Florida, about 30 minutes northeast of Orlando, who murdered his mom, dad, and brother in January of 2019. He had been out of work for about six months or so. He was some sort of nurse when he was caught stealing propofol from the drug locker because it's believed that he wanted to administer the drug to some of the patients that he oversaw, which I guess would knock them out. You know, it's the same drug that Michael Jackson was given by his doctor, Conrad Murray, but it actually knocked Michael Jackson out permanently. So clearly it's a potentially dangerous drug to just be giving to people like whenever, however you want. So after he lost his job, he was basically stuck at home trying to figure out what he was going to do next because he not only did he go to college specifically to become a nurse, that's all he ever did. This arrest was close to guaranteeing that he would never be able to work in that capacity again. However, I do believe that the charges were eventually dropped and he would have been able to eventually find another job in nursing. But in the midst of all this, he had never moved out of his parents' house. So it didn't feel like that there was this tremendous amount of urgency for him to get back into the workforce anyway. So that's where this guy, Grant, a motto was when he was fired and that's when he started going online and ultimately discovered 
webcam models. And there was this one particular model that he became obsessed with, and her name was Sylvie. In order to get attention from her or to request her to perform specific actions, you had to purchase the website's currency, which came in the form of tokens. And then you could pay your favorite webcam model in tokens and she would do whatever it was that you paid for. So I didn't do the math, but I listened to True Crime Island and Cambo. He did some of the math and it comes to about $600 will get you less than an hour of interaction with these models on the webcam. So it's really super expensive. And it gave users like Grant the feeling that this was more personal and intimate than just watching adult or explicit material online because the model actually interacted directly with you and acknowledged you and expressed gratitude for your purchases, whatever. So this guy sat around his parents' house for months on end obsessing over Sylvie from Bulgaria. And he would lie, cheat, and steal in order to pay her to do her actions, the ones that he wanted her to do. Ultimately, it was to the tune of more than $200,000. His mom and dad had good jobs, but he still drove them to the brink of financial ruin to a point where they not only had to take out a second mortgage on their home, Grant's father was forced to actually postpone his retirement for at least a couple of years because of all of this. I was also under the impression that Grant's mom and dad, along with his brother named Cody, helped him out financially too on top of what he was taking from them without their knowledge. From what I understood, they gave or loaned him money under the guise that he was working on earning money streaming on Twitch, but he would also steal their credit card information and that is where he ran up the bulk of the debt that they fell into. I think he also fraudulently gained access to their bank accounts. And while Grant did play Fortnite on Twitch and had a few subscribers, most of his time was spent buying tokens for Sylvie. There came a time when he got into a fight with his parents and he ended up landing at his aunt's house. And what do you know, his parents end up getting a call from her telling them that Grant had stolen not only her credit card information, but also her husband's and her children's, those are Grant's cousins, and ran up thousands and thousands of dollars in charges that all went to Sylvie. Grant's dad begged his sister to not press charges, and all of them, dad, mom, and brother Cody, they promised that they would pay her back. They wanted to do anything that they could to make sure that Grant wouldn't be sent to jail. So eventually, they had kept an eye on Grant because they didn't want him running away from the aunt's house. They said, just hang tight. We're going to make some arrangements from him. But eventually, they went to go pick him up, and they did not take him home. They ended up taking him to an addiction treatment center, which they also paid for. I believe the brother Cody paid for it, $14,000 for 60 days. But Grant ended up checking himself out after only two weeks. and. This all was non-refundable. During the time that Grant was gone, however, his father had gone through his computer and his electronics and locked him out of everything. His computer was locked. His iPad had a passcode. 
his cell phone was deactivated and he was given one that did not have data access. And probably most embarrassingly of all, if Grant was even capable of feeling any sort of shame, his dad actually got in touch with Sylvie and told her that Grant was not who he claimed to be. She was under the impression that he was wealthy, that he owned a home, that he drove a BMW when the fact was he was broke, he had nothing, and drove a Honda. Not that there is anything wrong with having a Honda. I personally like Hondas. I've had a couple of them in my time, and I would like to have another one in the future. Right now, I'm stuck with the Hyundai, which is okay. I wanted a big sedan, and I got the Hyundai Sonata, which is very comfortable for me and my dogs, and I'm happy with it for now. So I am not one to car shame Grant or anybody else for that matter, but he certainly was not driving around in a BMW. And his father got in touch with Sylvie, and he was like, no, he is nothing, he has nothing, he does nothing, and everything that he has spent on her was stolen from his family members. So for the most part, I believe she was like, oh, okay, well, she decided that she wasn't going to have anything to do with him anymore. When Grant got back home, his parents had put together a handwritten contract with some house rules, and it included getting a job and zero contact with Sylvie. If he did, he would be automatically kicked out of the house. Well, Grant was obsessed and addicted to Sylvie. And in order to get around all of the restrictions so that he would be able to talk to her, which, by the way, he referred to in his interrogation as somebody that he was in a relationship with that he couldn't just go cold turkey without, he borrowed his mom's cell phone and contacted her through Twitter direct messages, but it seems like she ignored him. Grant's parents found out and told him that he had to go. Instead of packing up his stuff and leaving, he decided to murder his mom, his dad, and his brother Cody, and then attempted to stage the scene to make it appear as though Cody was the one who had shot his parents and then killed himself. When Grant was arrested and interrogated as they went through the questioning, Grant set it up that way to make it sound like he had packed up and left, but met up with his brother Cody, who reassured him that he would go home and take care of everything, and this all turned into this murder-suicide. Grant also portrayed his father as an abuser who had threatened his life, but Cody's co-workers were immediately alarmed when he failed to show up for work the next day, and they had called for a welfare check. Police arrived at the house, and they could see without even going inside that something was wrong. There was a large piece of furniture blocking the front door so nobody could get through. All the blinds were pulled closed and whatever windows didn't have blinds were covered up with paper or cardboard so nobody could peer inside. But that was kind of dumb and pointless because if Grant wanted it to appear to be a murder-suicide perpetrated by his brother after a huge blow-up with his parents, it doesn't make sense that a killer would have stopped to block all the doorways and windows and then shoot himself. There's no reason to and the only person who would have a reason is a killer who wanted to hide what he had done for as long as possible. But it turned out that the murders didn't go undiscovered for all that long because Cody had a lot of people at his job that cared about him, that cared enough to know that something was wrong when he didn't show up for work. And the only reason that I'm talking about this is because I was really moved by 
how much this family tried to help him. It was a big part of his interrogation. He talked about all the money that his mom and his dad and his brother had given to him to help him. And over and over again, every time he failed, they were his safety net. Every time Grant got into trouble, they bailed him out. And he robbed them blind. He robbed his aunt and his uncle and his cousins blind. He caused his parents to remortgage their home, to postpone their retirements. His brother had even put up the money for a two-week trip, all expenses paid, vacation to Japan because of their shared love of anime. Grant was broke and he had no income because he was fired for stealing propofol so he could knock patients out for longer periods of time because he probably wanted to go and hide inside a broom closet to talk to his so-called girlfriend. His family had paid for a 60-day treatment program that he checked out of after only two weeks, and they still took him back in with one major rule that he could not break. No more talking to Sylvie. And Grant just couldn't do it, so his answer to his problems was to annihilate his family. And it really, really got me in the feels And it really had me appreciating the people that I have that do care about me. And to be honest with you, I don't even know if they would care as much and to the extent that Grant's family did for him. Even his name, Grant, means to give. Yet, ironically, all this man did was take. And even though he murdered three people in cold blood, he laid in wait for two of them. He stole from everybody who ever cared about him and helped him. And he only ever expressed regret to the anonymous people that he met online. The death penalty loving state of Florida jury still spared his life and recommended that he be sentenced to life in prison, which is where he will be this Thanksgiving and every Thanksgiving for the rest of his life with no family left to even think about coming to visit his dumbass. I told you in the opening that I've been feeling a little more down than up lately. And maybe listening to stories like Grant Amato's doesn't really help, but that's debatable. For the past couple of weeks, I wondered what the best thing would be for me to do this Thanksgiving. It's really the first one where I'm going to not be with my family. And I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about that. But then I had some flashbacks of Thanksgivings with my in-laws. And it's so triggering to think about how awkward and uncomfortable that was. And I am so thankful, so thankful to not have to deal with that mess either. So for anyone out there listening to this and spending this traditional holiday in an untraditional way, Here is to not being in jail or with the cringy in-laws. Anyway, Grant Amato's story has nothing to do with today's episode or Thanksgiving for that matter. So let's get on with this. You are listening to the 210th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the Manson Tunnel murder. Are 
Our story begins in the city of Chatsworth, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles located in the San Fernando Valley. And it is in Chatsworth where you'll find the Santa Susana Tunnel. Construction of the tunnel began in 1900 by Southern Pacific Railroad, and the first train to pass through it was on March 20th, 1904. And yes, that would be the same railroad company that we talked about in the last episode on the train derailment and gasoline explosion in San Bernardino back in 1989. Today, the tunnel is owned by Union Pacific and is used for both freight trains and the Metrolink commuter train. The tunnel underwent some major construction in 1922 and also a complete rebuild in 2000. The tunnel is 1.4 miles or 2.25 kilometers long and it runs through the Simi Hills and Santa Susana Mountains and it connects the Simi Valley to the San Fernando Valley and is credited with cutting down commute times between key areas where before one would have to go around the mountains. This tunnel allowed for travel straight through them instead. By the end of the 1960s, the Santa Susana Tunnel was given a dark, much more notorious nickname, the Manson Tunnel. That's because it's located about 500 feet or roughly 150 meters away from Spawn Ranch, which is where Charles Manson and his family lived for a time. While the Manson murders are arguably one of the most infamous cases to ever come out of the state of California, it is not one that we've talked about all that much here on this show, if at all. I may have brought him up occasionally. I personally don't think it's necessary to cover the entire case because you can find books and articles and documentaries and podcasts galore about the Manson family. And I don't really think that there's much more out there that hasn't already been said. But if you're familiar with the story, then you know leading up to the summer of 1968, Manson and his followers kind of drifted around, crashing at people's houses or on their properties. And after a stint in federal prison on Terminal Island, Manson had gone to San Francisco. He strummed his guitar and lured in some wayward young people, mostly women, telling them that he would give them a new family and a new home. And by way of panhandling, begging for food, hitchhiking, and recruiting new family members as they went along, they camped and couch surfed their way back down to Los Angeles. Eventually, a couple of the girls hitchhiked their way into the home of musician and singer of co-founder of the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson. And he ended up letting the family crash at his mansion. And it didn't hurt that the young lady Manson followers were doing all of the cooking and cleaning, but they were also having sex and swapping STIs. But if we're being real, those women were being treated as servants. But Wilson was spending thousands and thousands of dollars taking care of them, buying food and clothes and cars and antibiotics. Eventually, Wilson grew to fear Manson and ended up having to leave the home, which he had leased. Manson and his followers were evicted shortly thereafter, and in August of 1968, they arrived at Spawn Ranch, where several Western movies and TV shows had been filmed. One year later, their killing spree would begin. Spawn Ranch became known as the place 
where the planning for the Manson killings had taken place, and in 2008, a search for the remains of possible Manson victims was launched, but nothing more was found. And 100 paces away from Spawn Ranch is the Manson Tunnel. The longest day of the year, the summer solstice of 1990, was also the last day of the life of 21-year-old Ron Baker. He was a bright, curious young man, an astrophysics major at UCLA, with aspirations of one day working in the aerospace industry, who also had a keen interest in the metaphysical, which would lead some to wonder for quite some time if there was more to his gruesome death than just your normal average everyday killing, that perhaps it was linked to something dark, something satanic. Ron, after all, was found murdered in the Manson Tunnel. And even though Manson himself really had little to nothing to do with it, his proximity alone was enough to assign it that nickname. The tunnel... It's spooky. Its dark walls are covered in graffiti, and some of it were symbols of the occult. This was, after all, 1990. Satanic panic had swept across the country and the world throughout the 80s and well into the 90s. We discussed the satanic panic phenomenon back when we covered the McMartin Preschool sexual abuse case, which dominated the news for the better part of the 1980s. And in addition to that, Southern California was only a few years removed from the murder spree of Satan-worshipping serial killer Richard Ramirez. When investigators were called to the tunnel where Ron's body was discovered by a couple of hikers, at first they had no idea who he was. He didn't have any identification on him, so he became the 135th John Doe for the LAPD in 1990. The scene was bloody, and initially it was thought that perhaps he had been struck by a train. But when they got a closer look, it became clear that this was no train accident. This young man had suffered numerous stab wounds, and not one but two slits to his throat. The brutality of it, the fact that it appeared he was killed on the night of the summer solstice, and that it took place inside the infamous Manson Tunnel, On the surface, it appeared as though this may have been an occult-related killing. Well, only if it were that simple. While the investigation was getting started on identifying who this young man was and who could have made him this way, there was another strange and chilling thing going on at the home of empty nesters Galen and Catherine Baker, the parents of two children who were already out on their own, Ronald and Patricia. Ron, born January 18, 1969, grew up in the San Fernando Valley and was actively involved along with his family in the Methodist Church. As he got older, he began leaning in on other types of religions, including Wicca and paganism, so much so that he joined a club at the college he attended, which was UCLA. The club was called the Mystic Circle which had just been founded in January of 1990, only about six months earlier. Anyway, while Ron, still a John Doe, 
had been brought over to the medical examiner's office for autopsy that evening. His parents, unaware what had happened to him, received a phone call. And this call came in later during the night than they usually receive calls. And the voice on the other end, it was one that the bakers did not recognize. And this voice told them that he had their son, and if they did not come up with $100,000 by 5 o'clock the next day, that he would die. So their first thought was that this was some kind of joke and not a very funny one. The time was close to midnight when Ron's dad called his apartment where he lived with two roommates, Nathan Blaylock and Duncan Martinez. He was told that Ron wasn't there, that he was dropped off at a bus stop and had plans to go to a meeting at UCLA and he hadn't come home yet. By the next morning, Ron still wasn't home, but the Bakers did receive a second phone call from the same caller who issued the ransom demand the night before. And the demand was repeated. Give us $100,000 by 5 o'clock or else Ron dies. That's when Ron's parents grew very concerned and they contacted law enforcement to report the alleged kidnapping and the phone calls for ransom. The police tapped the baker's phone, fully expecting to hear from the caller with the instructions on what to do next. But when their phone rang next, it wasn't the person claiming to have their son. It was LAPD detective Rick Jackson. Investigators had kind of put two and two together. Having a hunch, they wondered if the John Doe that was found in the Manson Tunnel might be the baker's missing son that they believed was kidnapped and held for ransom. Detective Jackson, along with his partner, Detective Frank Garcia, made the drive over to the baker home because this is the type of conversation that needed to be had face-to-face in person. When they got there, they shared what they could about their suspicions that they had a John Doe that had been discovered by a pair of hikers and they asked if the family could give them a picture of Ron so they could take it back to the medical examiner's office. The bakers gave them a photo and then just waited for the news. The detectives brought the picture and gave it to the coroner, and it was confirmed. The John Doe was 21-year-old Ron Baker. Detective Jackson called the bakers again and asked about some jewelry that their John Doe had been wearing when he was killed. They described some earrings along with a couple of pendants, a religious cross, and a pentagram. Ron's parents confirmed that he did wear those pieces of jewelry, so they requested that they come down to the medical examiner's office and provide a positive identification, which Ron's father did. It was certain that the deceased young man discovered in the Manson Tunnel and Ron Baker were one and the same. This was their only son and his sister Patricia's only sibling, gone at just 21 years of age. Ron had been such an incredible, positive, integral, and very much loved part of their family. He had so many friends. He was a genuine, down-to-earth, easygoing, funny young man who was very high-achieving, always earning straight A's in school. He had a passion for knowledge and learning, and while at UCLA, he had developed an interest in religions beyond his Methodist upbringing, which is what brought him to the Mystic Circle group at his school, so he can learn more about topics related to Wicca and the occult. 
Ron's parents and his sister had not a clue as to who would want to do something like this to Ron or why. It was truly baffling. They racked their brains trying to think of anything or anyone. But he really was a guy who never had an enemy. But it was his new interest in these religions, which had become quite trendy at the time, that fueled speculation that his murder may have been related to occult activity. And mind you, this is in the time when satanic panic had swept the nation. Rumors swirled that this was related to witchcraft or some kind of satanic ritual or sacrifice. And the fact that this happened inside the Manson Tunnel during the summer solstice, which is a day celebrated by several pagan groups, the media leaned in on the story hard and only spread the occult connection even more so. And because detectives didn't have any solid leads in the beginning, they considered the possibility too at first. But they wanted to speak to the last two people who saw Ron, his roommates, Nathan and Duncan. Nathan Blaylock was a rather tough-looking individual, originally from Detroit, Michigan. He had spent some time in the military, and at the time he was living with Ron and Duncan, he was working as a security guard. Nathan was the newest friend in their little trio. Duncan Martinez, in contrast, had a friendly, more welcoming personality. He was outgoing, jovial, easy to talk to, and when detectives came to speak to him, he was very relaxed and cooperative. He had been in the Army Reservist for a short time, but at the time that he was living with Nathan and Ron, he was mostly working a variety of part-time odds and ends jobs. Duncan and Ron had been best friends for many, many years, though they had somewhat polar opposite personalities. Ron was friendly, but he was more of a quiet type, a little bit shy and introverted. But Duncan was very talkative and outgoing and seemed to know a lot about everything. At least he acted like he did. At the time when detectives showed up to speak to the roommates, Nathan happened to be out of town. And Duncan, he was there to speak to them about Ron. But the news of his friend's murder was distressing. He was visibly upset finding it hard to believe that his friend was gone. He told detectives that they were all hanging out that last afternoon, and they all ate dinner together. Afterwards, Ron had a mystic circle meeting to go to on campus at UCLA. He didn't have a car, so he intended to take the bus, but his roommates, who were going to head out to play a pickup game of basketball, offered to drop him off at the bus stop. As the detective stood there inside the apartment, it was pretty clear that some, if not all of them, had a vested interest in the occult. There was a religious shrine or an altar set up that included several candles and pentagrams. Even though detectives were still going to explore the occult angle and the media had pretty much run wild with the idea, Ron's family weren't so quick to buy that their son's murder had anything to do with religious rituals or sacrifices. He was still a member of their Methodist church and had never been anything other than devoted to his beliefs. Ron was laid to rest a week later. Nathan did not attend the services, but Duncan did. 
He also delivered an emotional eulogy, describing his friend as the sweetest guy in the world, and he said that he hoped that this is something that he would be able to get over, which I thought was kind of a weird thing to say. But it turns out Duncan Martinez was a weird guy. More on that as we go along. Even though it had been a week since Ron's death and his funeral services had taken place, detectives really didn't have very much to go on when it came to the investigation. They had not named any suspects. They had nobody to really investigate. They did not recover the murder weapon at the scene. But there were a couple of bits of evidence they were able to identify. For one thing, Ron Baker was intoxicated at the time that he was murdered. In fact, his blood alcohol content was three times the legal limit. Though I'm not 100% sure exactly what that may have been, the legal limit in California was lowered from 0.1% to 0.08% in 1990, the very year that this murder happened. But I couldn't pin down an exact date when that went into effect. So Ron's blood alcohol content was somewhere between 0.24% and 0.3%. Either way, he was very intoxicated because he was not known to be all that much of a drinker, and he was pretty skinny, so we can assume with a reasonable degree of certainty that he was messed up. But as messed up as Ron may have been, he did put up a fight for his life, as blood that was not his was discovered under his fingernails. DNA testing was not available at the time, but they did find it to be type AB positive, which makes up 4% of the population. While that isn't as accurate as DNA, it was narrow enough to either include or exclude people if they were to come up with any suspects. And despite the fact that Ron was killed not only in the midst of the satanic panic epidemic, it was also a time in Southern California when murders in general were an epidemic. But most of that could be attributed to gang and drug-related violence a profile that middle-class college student Ron Baker did not fit into. Detectives decided to look a little further into the Wicca angle. They spoke to a member of the Mystic Circle and someone who was friends with Ron. Her name was Christina Reyna. She was able to not only shed some light on the religion itself, but also Ron's involvement in it, how he felt about it and what he believed in. And she was clear that for the most part, This is a peaceful, spiritual religion, and as far as Ron and his killing being part of some sort of sacrificial ritual, there was just no way. He would have had no part in anything of the sort. The more that detectives learn about Ron and Wicca and the Mystic Circle, the less they felt that it had anything to do with his murder. Even though investigators had moved on from that theory, the media hung on to it for quite some time. The detectives decided to start with their roommates again, the last ones who saw Ron, Duncan, and Nathan. They hadn't yet met with Nathan, but he was back from his vacation. They were asked to explain what happened the last time they saw Ron, and they basically told the same story the first time that Duncan was questioned. Nathan's recounting of the evening matched up with Duncan's. They dropped him off at a bus stop so he could go to campus for a meeting, and the two of them carried on to their basketball game. Nathan and Duncan alibied each other, essentially. When they finished up with a basketball game, they arrived back at their apartment late in the evening, and they never saw Ron again. He never came home. 
so it seemed like they were able to account for their time if their story was truthful and could be corroborated. The detectives would spend some time working on that. But as they sat there and listened to Duncan and Nathan recount the last time that they saw Ron, the detectives did pick up on a couple of things that stood out to them as being a little bit off. For one thing, by all accounts, from what everyone had told investigators, everywhere that Ron went, he carried his backpack with him. But at the apartment, his backpack was laying there in his bedroom on his bed. He also did not have his keys with him either, which he would have needed to get back into his place. And then Duncan told detectives something that they found to be really strange. He said that when he and Nathan found out that Ron had been kidnapped and held for ransom, that they decided to go out to try to find him on their own. Not only that, he said that the two of them drove to Chatsworth and searched the areas surrounding the Manson Tunnel. At the time that the two of them may have found out about Ron's kidnapping or alleged kidnapping, his body had not been identified yet. His parents hadn't been notified, so nobody would have really known that he was discovered inside the tunnel. So it begs the question, why in the world would these two drive over to the Manson Tunnel in Chatsworth to search for their friend who they believed to be kidnapped, who could have been kept somewhere, anywhere else in the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area, yet they just so happened to decide to go search the exact place where it turned out Ron's body was left? It didn't make sense, but it didn't make for any kind of proof of anything. So investigators just had to make note of that and come back to it later on once they gathered some solid information. Remember, that information came from Duncan, not Nathan. Well, as it turns out, the detectives were bothered deeply by the revelation that Nathan and Duncan had gone searching for Ron over near the Manson Tunnel. So they asked the two of them if they would be willing to be subjected to a polygraph examination. Nathan refused to take the test. Duncan agreed to it, but ended up failing miserably. When he was told the results, Duncan Martinez clammed up and hired an attorney. Detectives were frustrated because they felt like they were on the right track here with the two roommates. They may very well have been able to put together a solid case, but the biggest hurdle, aside from the fact that Duncan had lawyered up, was detectives for the life of them, they could not figure out what the heck the motive would have been for this killing. There was nothing that the detectives could come up with to explain why Ron's best friends, one of them nearly a lifelong best friend, and roommates would have had anything to do with his brutal murder. It just didn't make any sense. And Ron's family, they certainly felt the idea of it was preposterous, especially when it came to Duncan. Nathan was kind of a newish friend, but Duncan, they had been best friends forever. Why? Why would he do that? He had been a guest in the Baker home countless times and was always, always polite and talkative. Ron's sister, Patricia, did say that sometimes Duncan was kind of a big talker, like he'd say stuff or talk about stuff that were things that were sort of off the wall and everyone would be like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever you say. But it was more like he was just a guy who enjoyed to regale his friends with his fanciful tales because it was in his personality to crave attention. 
Two weeks after Ron's murder, Nathan and Duncan packed up their belongings and moved out of the apartment that they shared. And as for Duncan, in the process of his move, he had asked Ron's parents if it would be okay if he stored some of his belongings in their garage temporarily until he settled down. They were happy to help, so Duncan left several boxes of his things at their home. And while Duncan was working out what he was going to do next, he and Ron's dad did talk on the phone occasionally. Duncan shared with him that he was feeling kind of uneasy about the police investigation. He had stopped cooperating, but he felt like he was under a tremendous amount of pressure because of their suspicions of him after he failed the polygraph. He was nervous, and he was certain that law enforcement were following him and watching him. And while Duncan may have been a little bit paranoid, which I guess you can't blame him, there was the fact that there wasn't anything investigators had on hand that would have made this a slam dunk case. But still, Duncan's paranoia soon got the best of him. And he would start making decisions that would mark the beginnings of his unraveling. Even though Duncan Martinez was feeling the heat from the investigation, the truth was the case had pretty much sputtered to a stop. The media's sensational headlines about a satanic ritualistic sacrificial killing had dropped off. The occult angle led to nowhere. And with Duncan no longer willing to talk to police, the leads dried up, and investigators had no other clues or bits of evidence to follow up on. That is, until Duncan Martinez brought himself back right smack into the middle of the case once again. This would be the first of several instances where Mr. Martinez should have simply listened to his attorney, stop running his mouth, and just shut the hell up. But for a young man who enjoys being the center of attention... He just couldn't resist. One month after Ron was murdered, in the middle of the night, an unidentified friend of Duncan's received a strange yet concerning call from him. He said that he had been kidnapped and he was being held at some warehouse in North Hollywood. He was breathing heavy. He sounded out of breath as he whispered. He didn't know what was going on and he was going to try to get out of there. And then suddenly he was cut off and... Grunting sounds could be heard as if Duncan was being attacked or punched. This phone call was recorded, so even though I didn't say specifically, I believe that this was a message left on the friend's voicemail. So both Detectives Jackson and Garcia received middle-of-the-night phone calls from their captain telling them about the weird phone call from Duncan. So they initiated a missing persons report for Duncan, working under the presumption that he too had been kidnapped. When they went looking for him, they couldn't find him, so the detectives turned to the media. It didn't sound like that they necessarily believed that he had been kidnapped, but rather they told reporters that they were interested in eliminating him as a suspect in Ron's murder, and as long as they were unable to find him, they wouldn't be able to do that. It sounds like it was more of a message for Duncan rather than anyone else because it didn't sound like there was any urgency about him possibly being a second kidnapping victim. When looking into what was going on with Duncan, the detectives were able to find the phone number that Duncan had made that cryptic call from. So they called that phone number. It rang a few times until someone finally answered. 
Detective Jackson identified himself and said that he was looking into a case and that this phone number had come up in the investigation. The person who answered the phone said, well, this is a payphone at McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas, Nevada. The person who picked up the call was a rando passerby. So the call Duncan had made had not originated from a phone in North Hollywood or from a warehouse. This meant that Duncan has now staged his own kidnapping. And investigators believe that he did so in order to throw them off his trail. The idea being, if he's a victim of a kidnapping, then he couldn't possibly be responsible for Ron's death. Well, that massively backfired because even though investigators kind of suspected that he knew more than he was letting on about Ron's murder or possibly may have had some involvement in it, they didn't have anything definitive to connect him directly to it. But now that Duncan has gone and staged his own kidnapping, it only served to make him appear even more suspicious. And when it came to Ron's family, his parents, and his sister, they had not accepted it to be a possibility that Duncan had anything to do with Ron's murder. Duncan was their son's best friend since they were kids. He eulogized him at his funeral. There was just no way. No way, that is, until detectives told them about the phone call he had made from McCarran Airport, where he claimed to have been kidnapped and held at a warehouse. That changed everything for the bakers. It was then they began seeing things differently. That maybe the impossible was possible. To them, with Duncan trying to disappear, attempting to stage it to look like a kidnapping, this could only mean one thing, that he had to be involved. It was then Ron's dad, Galen, remembered that Duncan had stored several boxes of his belongings in his garage. So he decided to go out there and take a look inside to see if there was anything in there that could shed some light on what was going on with him. And in one of Duncan's cardboard boxes, Galen found a handwritten note that was a to-do list of sorts. And it had things written down such as get new identity, sell car, amongst other things. To Ron's dad, it sounded like Duncan was preparing to leave the country. Based on everything that he found on that list, but just like everything else in the case involving Duncan, it didn't look good, but it wasn't exactly the smoking gun either. And after that, without hearing any more from or about Duncan or where he might be, and Nathan having told his story and was sticking to it, that they dropped Ron off at the bus stop and he never saw him again, time began passing, and once again, Ron's case came to a standstill. The first anniversary of Ron's murder came and went, and even though the detectives were kind of stuck, they weren't giving up. Duncan was still nowhere to be found, but investigators were still looking and waiting. After all, Duncan was the type of guy who thought he was the smartest person in the room. He really stepped in it, though, when he attempted to fake his kidnapping. He thought that he was so clever, and you know, that wasn't going to change. He may still have been a step ahead of detectives at the moment, but it was only going to be a matter of time before he would step in it once again. Duncan Martinez seemed to have this grandiose theatrical way about him. He was really the star of his own show and everybody else was his adoring audience. Detectives were certain that Duncan would reappear center stage once again 
for his next act. A year and a half after Ron's murder, late 1991, the place, Boston, Massachusetts. A trio of young men arrived at the John F. Kennedy Federal Building in downtown Boston, there to speak to one of their passport agents, coincidentally with the first name of Duncan, Agent Duncan Haywood Maitland. He checked these guys out until one of them finally said he had an emergency. He was scheduled to fly out of Boston's Logan Airport, headed to Paris, France, and he didn't have a passport and needed to get one ASAP. The young man identified himself as Jonathan Wayne Miller. And you know, when you get your passport, you need some pretty solid pieces of identification, paperwork, things of that sort. Government-issued identification, birth certificates, you know, the usual stuff. Well, Jonathan here had some papers, including a transcript from school, but nothing that had his photo on it, much less something to prove his citizenship. So Agent Duncan Haywood Maitland told him, sorry, bro, this isn't going to work. He needed something with his picture on it, and he needed his passport photos. So Jonathan and his two friends stepped away for a little bit, but they came back with passport pictures. You know, they have to be that certain kind of particular square size. So he had those, but Agent Duncan was like, yeah, okay, but I need some ID. I can see that these are pictures of you, that you just had them taken, but I also need an acceptable form of identification. Well, Jonathan, he said, these are my ID, pointing to his two buddies. And I have no idea who the two people he was with were. They could have been two panhandlers he found nearby for all anybody knew. Jonathan told the agent, they'll tell you who I am. And Agent Duncan was like, yeah, no, nice try. But if you could bring in a blood relative, maybe your mom or a sibling, that might work. Jonathan suddenly appeared distressed and he told Agent Duncan that he wouldn't be able to do that. Cue the sad face and the forlorn music in the background. He said, I can't bring my family here. My upbringing was wrought with abuse and neglect. My childhood was a nightmare. I was forced to finally run away from home. And I've only ever finished the eighth grade. Agent Duncan was like, I hear what you're saying, but I'm still going to need some valid ID in order for you to obtain a passport. Jonathan showed Agent Duncan his social security card. And it appeared to be valid, but it also appeared to be fresh off the presses. And that in and of itself is suspicious that it's possibly someone who has recently created a new ID. This wasn't Agent Duncan's first rodeo. He had been working as a passport agent for a long time, and he's seen all sorts of ridiculousness with passports and fakers. There was just something not right about this guy, and he just had to tell him, no, come up with some proper ID and we'll talk. But there was something about this Jonathan Wayne Miller that really didn't sit right with the passport agent. So he decided that when he came back to work the following morning that he would look into it a little bit more, just in case someone was trying to hijack a plane or was a flight from justice or wanted by the FBI or something like that. Jonathan Wayne Miller told Agent Duncan that he was born in Webster, Massachusetts, which was 
about an hour and a half away from Boston, really close to the borders of Connecticut and Rhode Island. So Agent Duncan, remembering the school that was listed on the transcript that Jonathan had tried to use as a form of ID, he called there and checked to see if there had been a Jonathan Wayne Miller who had attended there. When he asked about the classes listed on the transcript and some of the state tests that had been taken, and one of them was a state test from California, the school official confirmed that not only were those classes in grades higher than they offered in their middle school level, there was never a student by the name of Jonathan Wayne Miller that ever attended. So what it looked like is the person who forged the transcript took their own California high school records and superimposed the name Jonathan Miller and a school from the city of Webster, Massachusetts onto it and tried passing it off as a form of ID. So the agent went ahead and contacted the FBI and reported the attempt at obtaining a passport fraudulently. And with that, the FBI issued an arrest warrant for Jonathan Wayne Miller. An investigation into Miller revealed that he was a person who didn't really seem to exist. Well, two months after Agent Duncan's odd encounter at the passport office in Boston, the elusive, seemingly non-existent Mr. Jonathan Wayne Miller was driving along Interstate 15 back clear across the country in Nephi, Utah, where he was pulled over by the highway patrol. The officer asked for the driver's ID, and when he went back to his patrol car and ran the young man's name, it turned out that the driver, Jonathan Wayne Miller, was wanted by the FBI. So he was taken into custody and tossed into the county jail there in Utah. Miller's last known address revealed that he was from Webster, Massachusetts, so law enforcement in Utah contacted the FBI in Massachusetts, and agents soon arrived at the home where a gentleman by the name of Jim Miller resided. He was Jonathan's dad. They asked about Jonathan, but Jim, so confused at this point, let the agents standing at his door know that his son, Jonathan, had died 21 years earlier. It was a surprising moment for the agents, but also a very painful one for Jim. In an interview with NBC, Jim revealed that his son, a toddler, just before his second birthday, had died, and it was an accident, though he did not reveal the specifics. So when law enforcement came knocking on Jim's door more than 20 years later looking for him, the pain of the loss of his son came flooding back. But this time, it wasn't just pain or grief. Anger came along with it. These agents were standing there telling Jim that his son was sitting in a Utah jail while he is having to stand there to tell them that it can't be him because he's dead and he's been dead for some two decades and change. Did he have to show them the grave in order for them to believe him? No, it wouldn't be necessary. It was pretty simple to figure out what was going on here. Meanwhile, back in Utah, they got word that Jonathan Miller was an alias, a stolen identity. But the person they had in custody as Miller was refusing to reveal his true identity. When he was sent before the judge, he was told, look, until you tell us who you are, you're just going to have to sit there in the county jail with no bail. We can't issue bail unless we know who the person is being given bail. So it didn't take long for this guy to decide that he didn't want to be sitting there in a jail cell indefinitely. So he finally revealed his name. 
Duncan Martinez. And surprise, surprise, he's under investigation for a murder out of California. In Massachusetts, Duncan somehow sought out and found the name of a boy close to his own age who had died while still a baby and stole that baby's identity. Back then in 1990 and before that time, it was probably the best and easiest way to become somebody else because there's not going to be any record of that person anywhere else. Yet, you know, they still have a valid name and a valid social security number to work with. I told you the Duncan Martinez show would be back in full swing. And for the most part, Duncan may have gotten away with it, if not for the agent who shared his first name, Agent Duncan, who could smell a rat from a mile away. In fact, Agent Duncan, still interested in seeing what all was going on with this identity theft attempt, looked up the death records and found Jonathan Wayne Miller. He found out when he contacted Vital Records, when they looked up where Jonathan's death certificate would have been kept, the actual page in the volume at the Vital Records Department was torn out. Duncan Martinez had gone there and ripped this baby's death record from the county files, resurrecting him from the dead in order to steal his identity. Detective Jackson called up Jim Miller and explained how his son's name got mixed up in all this mess, how Duncan Martinez was a suspect in a murder in Los Angeles and attempted to flee the country by fraudulently obtaining a passport in his dead child's name. Jim Miller was hurt and angry. He was like, you just don't mess with people like this, especially when you're possibly wanted for murder. For the year and a half since he made that fake kidnapping phone call from the airport in Las Vegas, Duncan had been in the Boston area for the most part. He had gotten a job at a pizza joint and rented a small apartment, all using the name and identity of a dead child. And now he was stuck in Utah and the FBI was charging him with fraud. But Duncan Martinez prepared for his next act and had come up with yet another scheme to try and see his way out of this new set of problems that he's suddenly found himself in. After Duncan had left Boston and wound up getting pulled over nearly right smack in the middle of the state of Utah, his days of hiding from his initial problems in California, you know, that pesky case of his best friend's murder, those days of hiding were over. It had been more than a year and a half, and even though his actions threw up a whole bunch of red flags about his involvement in Ron's murder, investigators really didn't have a solid case against him. It was Duncan's own attempts at trying to outmaneuver police that brought about even more suspicion. It still wasn't enough, though, but Duncan wanted to keep playing ball. After he had some time to stew about it in the county jail in Utah, Duncan had his attorney contact the detectives on Ron's case, who told him that he was willing to talk about the night of his death. But there was a catch. Duncan and his attorney wanted some sort of immunity deal in order for him to talk. He would let them know what happened and supposedly promised it would be nothing but the truth, but he did not want to be prosecuted. So the detectives were like, okay, we're game. And they settled on giving him this deal a limited deal that they referred to as king for a day. Duncan Martinez could tell detectives anything that he wanted to, and they would not be allowed to use any of it against him in court, but just for one day. And the hope for investigators was that it would provide them with some new information and fresh leads 
to try to unstick a case that had been stuck for 18 months. The catch was this. Duncan would not be allowed to tell anyone anything about this case ever. He was not to speak of it, including anything that he told the detectives on his one free day, or if detectives uncovered any incriminating evidence against him, he could be charged with Ron's murder. But for this one day, he could say anything that he wanted with full and complete immunity. The night that Ron Baker died, Duncan said that he and Nathan talked Ron into going over to the Manson Tunnel. They were going to meet up with some girls and do some drinking. But as they walked along the railroad tracks, Nathan stumbled over something and almost fell. Ron apparently started laughing and cracked a joke about it, which angered Nathan. He got so mad, in fact, that Nathan began stabbing Ron. According to Duncan, Ron began yelling, asking for Duncan's help. Why are you doing this? What did he do? And at some point, Duncan said that he could tell that Ron was mortally wounded. And he told Nathan that he needed to make sure that he was dead so that he is not suffering and he instructed Nathan to slit his throat, which he did. Now, all of this to me sounds like a whole bunch of BS, because if this was just a trip to the Manson Tunnel to meet girls and drink, why is there a knife? And what happened to all the girls? And it sounds like they got Ron exceedingly drunk, three times the legal limit, and then stabbed him to death. And it sounds a little hinky because of what the two of them did next. They left the crime scene, and according to Duncan, Nathan told him, ordered him, to call Ron's parents and tell them that they've kidnapped him and demand a ransom. Duncan insisted that he didn't want to do that, but Nathan threatened him that if he didn't, that he would kill him. So they found a payphone and made that late-night call to the bakers, telling them that they had their son and to come up with $100,000 by 5 o'clock the next day or else Ron would die. From there, according to Duncan's version of the story, they disposed of the knife, they went back to the apartment, they washed up, they changed their clothes, and went to a party that somebody else was hosting in their apartment complex. As one does, right? You stab and slit your best friend's throat and party afterwards. Anyway, when they got home from the party, they later made that early morning follow-up phone call to Ron's parents, making their ransom demand for a second time. From there, police got involved. Ron's body was found, and nothing ever came of it. So with this story, Duncan gave a tale that sounded like it had some slivers of truth woven throughout it. But he definitely minimized his role in the killing, basically placing all of the blame for it and the ransom calls on Nathan. He said that he had nothing to do with it, and in fact, he was being threatened by Nathan if he did not comply. At one point, Duncan said, Nathan did it. I didn't really think it was going to happen. And detectives asked him, well, if you didn't think this was going to happen, then why did you lure Ron up there? Now, this is where Duncan kind of shoots himself in the foot but he's free to do so because he is king for the day. You see, to me, the part about Nathan tripping over the railroad tracks and getting angry when Ron cracks a joke doesn't sound like anything that was planned. But the fact that they had a knife and that their next stop was to a payphone to demand a ransom 
Both of those elements sound like this whole thing was very well planned out. So when Duncan answered the question, if he didn't think this was going to happen, why lure Ron up there? His answer confirmed that the whole story was dubious at best. He explained that he and Nathan watched some Dragnet, which was a late 1960s TV cop show, that there were plots of kidnappings and ransoms, and that's where they got the idea. So he admitted that he and Nathan discussed this beforehand, and he admitted that they lured Ron up to the tunnel. But he did deny doing any of the stabbing or having a hand in the actual killing. Duncan continued by saying that he didn't just think that this was real. He didn't think it was possible for Nathan to commit this crime, like this couldn't be actually happening. But it had to be, and he started to realize that it was And while detectives sat there and listened, they did not believe for a minute that the two of them weren't in on this together and that Duncan was an unwitting and unwilling participant in all of this. After all, look at the lengths to which Duncan went to to try and disappear. He faked his own abduction. He fled clear across the country. He stole the idea of a long dead baby. He tried to obtain a passport under said dead baby's name and fled back across the country again And only until he was stuck in jail did he finally offer to tell detectives what happened, but only for full immunity from prosecution, and then proceeded to throw his supposed friend under the bus by blaming the whole thing entirely on Nathan. Duncan Martinez did a tremendous amount of lying, conniving, and manipulating in order to save his own ass. A lot more, I think, than usual. He was determined to see himself out of this predicament and he would do anything to make that happen. And luckily for him, he had a fall guy to pin the murder on. And he had many months to sit there and spin the story that would see him coming out the other end of this smelling like roses. And let's not forget, he stood up at Ron's funeral and delivered an emotional eulogy, knowing full well that he was there and watched when the baker's son was murdered and most likely had a hand in it and said that he had hoped someday that he could get over this. And meanwhile, Nathan laid low and stayed quiet, though that wouldn't bode well for him either. So Duncan had provided detectives with a story. Granted, they couldn't use it against him to prosecute him, but they still had Nathan to consider. But make sure to keep it in the back of your mind that that deal for a day did have those caveats. And knowing what we know about Duncan Martinez, we can be fairly certain we haven't heard the last of him yet. Not by a long shot. But in the meantime, Duncan had gone back to Utah. I don't know whatever happened with the passport charges. Maybe that was worked out too in the deal for him to get out of that Utah County jail and to talk to detectives about Ron's murder. But he just took his happy ass back to Utah while the second anniversary of Ron's murder came and went. Detectives Jackson and Garcia decided to refocus on Nathan. As it turns out, things weren't going very well for him. He had fallen into using drugs And along with another friend of his, they committed or attempted to commit a bank robbery. Nathan was locked up in a Riverside County jail, which is where detectives found him. But he had no idea that his good friend had ratted him out to police. 
But at the same time, investigators couldn't rely on the dubious word of Duncan Martinez. They had some forensic evidence. They had blood underneath Ron's fingernails that was found to be type AB positive, which is rare, attributed to only 4% of the population. Duncan's blood type turned out to be type A. So they obtained a warrant for Nathan's blood, and when they tested it, it turned out to be AB positive. So he is part of the 4%. That is still good evidence, but they needed more. They needed definitive proof that it was Nathan who had the knife in his hand as he stabbed Ron. They decided that Duncan would help them out once again. So when they got in touch with Duncan, the detectives told him, you're going to help us prove what you told us is true. And Duncan was excited to help. This was like gold to him, working with the cops to put a killer away. This is like being on a TV show. He was all over it. And hey, if he could get Nathan convicted of Ron's murder, then he'd be scot-free for life. So it was arranged for Duncan to talk to Nathan on the phone at the jail. And it was just like old friends reconnecting like nothing had ever happened. Nathan asked where he had been and Duncan said he was over in Boston for a bit. Duncan said something along the lines of having heard that Nathan had gotten into a lot of trouble. And he was like, yeah, you could say that. But soon Duncan started nudging the conversation towards Ron's murder. He said that police had recently been to his mom's house asking about his blood type or some nonsense like that. And soon Duncan was able to get Nathan to go along with his claim that Nathan was the one in the tunnel that night that had struggled with Ron. Duncan said, remember how you got scratched? And Nathan replied, yeah, I thought about that. And Duncan said, I think you guys were wrestling. And Nathan said, I have nothing to say. This line isn't secure. So before they hung up and still unaware that Duncan was totally setting him up, Nathan asked him to come visit him at the Riverside Jail. So a few days later, Duncan was there, wired for sounds, of course, and he was eager to do it. The detectives described Duncan as acting like he was a star of some sort of Hollywood cop drama. So on the recording, they got a little more out of Nathan, as Duncan mentioned that the police were claiming that his blood was found on the wall of the tunnel. Nathan acknowledged the possibility, but the conversation was somewhat incriminating, not fully. So detectives still held off from indicting Nathan on murder charges until they got a little bit more information. And while investigators had that immunity agreement with Duncan, they weren't going to be able to charge him, though they thought that he was just as culpable for the murder, even if he didn't do the stabbing as he claimed. Ron's family were very, very unhappy with the fact that Duncan was enjoying this immunity. He had been Ron's best friend, not Nathan, so the betrayal was worse as far as they were concerned. He had been over to their house in the time since Ron died, several times. He spoke at Ron's funeral, yet he never said anything to the bakers about what he knew. But Duncan wasn't worried about it. He was looking to the future, fully intending to put that part of his life in the past for good. And with that, Duncan Martinez began the process of reinventing himself yet again. Now that he was free and clear of having to worry about being charged with Ron's murder and having handed detectives a suspect on a silver platter, it was now Duncan time. 
He enrolled at the University of Utah, apparently with a plan to major in film and media. He wanted to become a filmmaker. He joined a fraternity. He became really popular with his new brothers. He changed up his look. He started wearing a black leather jacket. He got a tattoo. He started telling people his name was Doofus O'Reilly. Before long, he was the newest, baddest, biggest guy on campus, always craving attention and really able to get it too. With his spiky blonde hair and big personality, it was compared to as if Guy Fieri had all of a sudden out of nowhere showed up in a big way at the University of Utah. Doofus's dazzling personality came with tall tales of his life from back in LA, but at the same time, with his charisma, he was able to relate to just about anybody. So while Doofus here was living his best life in Utah, detectives back in California were still moving along as best they could with Ron's murder case. And they wanted Duncan's help yet again. They wanted him to call Nathan, still at the Riverside County Jail, and try to pull just a little bit more information out of him, something that's more incriminating, so they could solidify their case. So the detectives came to Utah and set up for the call to take place and to be recorded from their hotel room. They got Duncan and Nathan on the phone, and after about 30 minutes, they felt like Duncan was getting close to getting Nathan to say something that would be the one thing that they needed to have a solid case against him. He told Nathan that there was a warrant for his arrest for Ron's murder, and he was afraid of being the one to have to take the fall for it. He said that he doesn't know what he's going to do or what he's going to tell police or what he's going to say. And Nathan said, just don't tell him you didn't do it. And Duncan said, yeah, okay, and? And Nathan said, and that you don't know who did. And Duncan was trying to get Nathan to admit to being the one who did the stabbing. Eventually, Duncan asked him how he was able to just tuck the whole thing away like it had never happened. And Nathan said, because I have to go on. It happened. It was a mistake. Well, that wasn't what detectives wanted or what Duncan wanted, which was Nathan to say, I know I did it. I did the stabbing, blah, blah, blah. But he never said it. And dreamers, you know, I don't think Duncan would have ever been able to get Nathan to take full responsibility like that because I believe they both did it. But the things Nathan did say, that it happened and that it was a mistake, that was enough for investigators to indict Nathan Blaylock for the murder of Ron Baker. Detectives took Doofus Duncan back to campus where he resumed his happy-go-lucky college life. Before he got out of the car, he turned and said to the detectives that it was too bad that they hadn't come to know each other under different circumstances because he would have loved to have been friends with them. Detectives couldn't help but feel like they had just watched a murderer walk free. But you know, dreamers, how many times has Doofus Duncan always managed to step into booby traps of his own making? Well, he wasn't finished. Because only a doofus could screw up the deal of a lifetime. So Duncan Martinez, of all the glowing things people had to say about this guy, for me, he's nothing but a dumbass. He's one of those frustrating types of people. Kind of like I talked about in the beginning with Grant Amato. No matter how many chances some people get, they still manage to screw themselves out of everything. 
Grant, a model, of course, is an extreme case of someone who everybody bent over backwards and emptied out their bank accounts to help, yet he still shot and killed every single person on this planet except for one who loved and cared about him. He killed every one of them. Duncan Martinez has been able to go from city to city across the country and just fall right into place without missing a beat and surround himself with friends and good times, all the while just a breath away from going down for murder. But sometimes when somebody like Duncan keeps getting away with stuff, it emboldens them. And before long, their luck runs out. It's run out for Duncan before, but he's always managed to bounce back. But this time, with this dumbass, I just can't with this guy, okay. Two and a half years after Ron's murder, it's the holiday season, and doofus Duncan is living his happy-go-skippy life in Utah, and for whatever stupid, dumbass reason, he decided to break into a sporting goods store. He was his usual stupid, friendly self when he was arrested and was like, yeah, I did it, and it was all personable and friendly, annoyingly chatty. Yeah, that's doofus for you. But the cops could tell that this guy was a smartass. I'd say dumbass, but, you know, you say tomato, I say tomato. He was a smartass dumbass who could schmooze his way in and out of anything. But it wasn't going to work this time. And this story actually finally takes a turn that I can get on board with. So Duncan was going to be arrested and he's going to be sitting his doofus ass in jail. But they need his ID and Duncan told them that if they wanted to stop by his place, his ID was there. So when they got there, they picked up his ID card. But then before they left, Duncan asked the cop if they could feed his pet rat for him. He was resigned to the fact that he was going to go to jail, so he wanted to at least make sure his pet rat didn't go hungry, and the cops were okay with that. So they kind of exchanged confused glances, and they were like, okay, whatever, and one of them went over to the rat's little habitat or whatever he kept it in, and he happened to glance down at a day planner that was sitting on the table. And the detective kind of sort of opened it up a little bit to see what was inside and he saw detective rick jackson's business card lapd robbery homicide well that sounds kind of serious who has a homicide detective's business card on the first page of their day planner so the nosy officer got more nosy and decided to call detective jackson and this officer was like so um duncan martinez and I'm sure Detective Jackson was like, yeah, Duncan Martinez, what now? And the officers talked for a minute and the officer in Utah was like, well, is there anything that I could do to help you? And suddenly light bulbs went off in Detective Jackson's head and he's like, yes, 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 you can. Duncan and his big ass mouth, which he can never keep shut, might just screw himself out of this killer immunity deal that he had. So the officers sat down in an interrogation room with Duncan with the audio and video recording on. From there, he proceeded to provide an excuse as to why he was caught burglarizing the sporting goods store. 
Duncan claimed the only reason he was doing this robbery was because someone was extorting him and made him do it because he was witness to a murder in Los Angeles. And he was told that if he didn't do this burglary, then they were going to tell the police that he was the one who committed the murder. And with that story that he told to the Utah police, Duncan was on the verge of rendering his king for a day full immunity deal null and void. They just needed to get him to blab a little bit more. And surprise, surprise, that wasn't going to be very difficult at all. Duncan had posted bail and was back home. So Utah investigators called him up. He wasn't there at the time, so they left a voicemail and Duncan returned the phone call. And this call was recorded. So the officer on the phone kind of eased the conversation into that murder in L.A. thing that Duncan had mentioned before. And there went Duncan, blabbing away about Ron's murder. I witnessed my best friend kill my best friend, and I didn't know what to do. They were my two best friends. Then Duncan got into the whole thing about how he had watched Dragnet with Nathan and how they saw a storyline about a kidnapping and a ransom and that they'd be able to pull it off like they did on TV, but only better, and how they lured Ron to the Manson Tunnel, how Nathan tripped, and when Ron cracked a joke about it, Nathan lost it and began stabbing him. They were wrestling. They ran into the wall. Ron was screaming for help, and Duncan said he didn't know what to do. The officer did notice that Duncan had a complete lack of emotion when talking about his best friend's horrific death. Even when he told Nathan that he needed to finish him off, you can't leave him suffering like that, that he needed to slit his throat or something. Duncan Martinez stating that he instructed Nathan to cut Ron's throat in the matter-of-fact way that he said it was chilling. So a few days later, just in time for Christmas, Detectives Jackson and Garcia got that audio tape of Duncan breaking his king for a day immunity deal. Everybody's getting murder charges for Christmas. Duncan Martinez and Nathan Blaylock were both indicted for the murder of Ron Baker. And I'll have some opinions about this as we near the end of the story, so hang in there. I'm not going to go into all the trial details. It was pretty cut and dry. In March of 1996, close to six years after Ron's murder, Nathan went on trial first. It didn't take long for the evidence to be presented and for the jury to find Nathan guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. As for Duncan, since he had been somewhat helpful along the way here, he was offered a plea deal. If he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, he would be out of prison in 12 years. Would dumbass doofus Duncan take the deal? Nope. He was like, F you, I want probation. Well, that sure as hell wasn't going to happen, so it went to trial. And he had a pretty good case. It wasn't him, it was Nathan that did the killing. And if it weren't for doofus's help, the cops would have never arrested him. They would have had no case. And while that may have been true, the jury just simply could not ignore the fact that, for one, Duncan admitted to talking about kidnapping Ron and demanding a ransom and that they could do it better than they did on TV. And they certainly couldn't ignore the fact that it was Duncan who gave the order to finish Ron off, to slit his throat. 
His jury, in short order, also found Duncan guilty of first-degree murder almost exactly 25 years ago as I write this on November 22, 1996. And the book got thrown at him too, Life Without the Possibility of Parole. So, too bad for Doofus Duncan. He thumbed his nose at a deal which would have seen him out of prison in a dozen years, but now he was going to die there, just like Nathan. Or would he? So that was 1996, and the years rolled by. The Bakers, Ron's mother and father, they both passed away. His sister had a family of her own. Both detectives, Jackson and Garcia, went happily off into retirement, and Duncan and Nathan were rotting away in prison. That is, however, until the summer of 2020. We were all in the midst of the COVID-19 quarantine and lockdown, and the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, announced that he was pardoning 13 people and commuting 21 sentences. Duncan Martinez was among the 21 commuted sentences. I looked up the executive order. This is what it reads. Executive Department, State of California, Commutation of Sentence, Duncan Martinez. In 1990, Duncan Martinez's crime partner fatally stabbed their roommate and fellow college student, Ronald Baker. Mr. Martinez was present, helped cover up the crime, and stole from Mr. Baker. On November 22, 1996, the Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, sentenced Mr. Martinez to life without the possibility of parole for murder. Mr. Martinez was 20 years old at the time of the crime and is now 50. He has been incarcerated for more than 25 years. He has expressed sincere remorse for Mr. Baker's murder. While serving a sentence with no hope of release, Mr. Martinez has maintained an exemplary disciplinary record while in prison. He has completed self-help programming and earned an associate's degree. Mr. Martinez has been commended by correctional staff and the warden of his prison recommended him for clemency. Mr. Martinez has lived in an honor dorm since 2001. He has participated in Paws for Life, a dog training program since 2014. Mr. Martinez participated in a serious crime that took the life of Mr. Baker. Since then, Mr. Martinez has dedicated himself to his rehabilitation and becoming a productive citizen. I have carefully considered and weighed the evidence of his positive conduct in prison, the fact that he was a youthful offender, his long-term confinement, and his good prospects for successful community reentry. I have concluded that Mr. Martinez merits the opportunity to make his case to the Board of Parole Hearings so it can be determined whether he is suitable for parole. This act of clemency for Mr. Martinez does not minimize or forgive his conduct or the harm that it caused. It does recognize the work that he has done since to transform himself. Therefore, I, Gavin Newsom, Governor of the State of California, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the statutes of the State of California, do hereby commute the sentence of Duncan Martinez to 25 years to life. Ron's sister, Patricia, saw the commutation letter that I just read you. Whether or not you agree with the decision to commute Duncan's sentence, it's debatable. I get it. 
I understand how the decision was made. But it doesn't take away from the fact that Ron never got a chance to live his life as a productive citizen. And that December of 2020, Duncan Martinez went up for parole. Detective Jackson and Patricia got together to watch the hearing. Duncan was his usual friendly talking, cordial self. He expressed remorse. He took responsibility. He's a changed person. He isn't a risk of being violent. Jackson and Patricia were given the chance to speak and they asked the parole board to keep Duncan Martinez in prison just as a jury had said it should be almost a quarter century earlier. But despite their pleas, the board found Duncan suitable for parole. And as of June of 2021, nearly exactly 31 years after Ron's murder, Duncan Martinez was released from prison. Nathan Blaylock did not apply for a commutation when Duncan did in 2017, but he has since, and it is at the governor's office. Today, Nathan is 54 years old and is serving his time at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. Should Duncan Martinez be a free man today? In my opinion, I'd say no. I don't think the story went as he told it. And this is just my speculation, but I believe Duncan was the mastermind behind the plot to do whatever it was they planned to do to Ron. Duncan is the schemer. Look at his modus operandi every step of the way in this whole entire story. He always had a convoluted plan in order for Duncan to get what Duncan wanted, no matter what it was. And I do believe that he came up with the plan to extort money from Ron's family. Nathan had been a newcomer to their friendship. Ron and Duncan had been friends for a very long time. And while Ron had graduated from high school and got accepted into UCLA and was studying astrophysics, Duncan was doing pretty much nothing. He had been an army reservist for a minute, but for the most part, he bounced from one odd job to another. Nathan was new to the area and working as a security guard. And for the most part, he seemed to be doing all right. I don't know how he met Ron and Duncan, but he did and he became roommates with them. And that's when I believe Duncan began coming up with a plan where he could come into a lot of money. Because he knew Ron's parents very well and he knew that they were well off. And it was a plan that there was no way he would be able to pull off himself. But now he had Nathan here, who was much bigger taller and tougher than the both of them and he had been in the military and he had been a star athlete in high school where he played football nathan was an imposing young man and you may or may not know this but ron and duncan are white despite duncan's last name of martinez he is blonde with blue eyes maybe green but now his hair is kind of gray and nathan blaylock is black and I think Duncan planned the whole crime and used Nathan as the muscle behind it. Why was Ron stabbed if they wanted to do a kidnapping and ransom? It's really hard to say, but we can speculate. There's a part of me that thinks that they intended to get Ron really wasted, which they did. And maybe they wanted to try to tie him up and keep him held hostage there at the railroad tracks while they worked on getting the ransom money from his mom and dad. What the problem with that is Ron's going to know that it was his friends that were trying to do this. 
There was no way they were going to get away with it if they had allowed Ron to live. But somewhere in the midst of this ridiculous plan, something went terribly wrong. And maybe it did happen the way Duncan said it happened. Maybe Ron had cracked a joke that pissed somebody off. And it could have been Nathan, but it also could have been Duncan as well. Whatever the case, the both of them conspired to lure Ron to the Manson Tunnel. And somebody brought a knife. Maybe the knife was meant to be used in order to control Ron or to threaten him. But at some point, someone got to stabbing. And it sounds like it was Nathan. But it also sounds like at some point, whatever was going on leading up to the stabbing, that Ron was on to them, or maybe he knew something was up. And perhaps he started to resist or began putting up a fight. And the evidence shows that he did have some aggressive contact with Nathan, since it was Nathan's blood found under his fingernails. But soon, if Ron was in a tussle with Nathan, he was probably no match for him, and things went too far, and Ron ended up stabbed, but not dead. Then, it was Duncan who either demanded that Nathan slit Ron's throat, or he did it himself. But because I think Duncan is a gutless wimp, I believe it was most likely Nathan that did it. But I think Duncan was the one that ordered him to do it. And I strongly believe that if not for Duncan, Ron Baker would be alive today. I think he smooth-talked Nathan into going along with this plan of his. And I do think that Duncan felt exceedingly comfortable with being able to get away with blaming Nathan for it. For one, because he and Ron were best friends and why would he kill his best friend? But also because Nathan is black and it was likely the system would lean in Duncan's favor which I believe is what has happened all along here in this case. And I believe it's the reason why Duncan Martinez is a free man today. I don't necessarily believe that he deserves to be, but I do feel that because he is, that Nathan Blaylock should also be free. And that is the tale of the Manson Tunnel Murder. I want to thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or feedback about this case, you can request to join the Facebook discussion group. You can follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I usually post pictures related to each of those cases on both Instagram and Facebook. If you would like to help support me and my dogs and the show and keep this all ad free you can subscribe to patreon where for as little as a dollar a month you can access dozens of full-length episodes of the show that you won't hear anywhere else i hope that all of you who celebrate thanksgiving have a wonderful holiday and that things aren't too cringe with the family and don't forget to not get too slappy or stabby at all those black friday sales Thank you all again for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>